Welcome to Animals to the Max. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. This show is about animals and the people who dedicate their lives to them. And welcome, everybody, to another episode of Animals to the Max. I'm your host, Corbin Maxey. I'm kind of laughing, folks. If you can't tell, it sounds like I swallowed a frog. Um, I'm just getting my voice back. So I apologize if I'm a little scratchy. Uh, we actually just got back uh, traveling from Rexburg, Idaho. We did 12 educational shows and they were like kind of pretty much back to back over the span of, uh, I think three or four days. Anyway, literally like I was just talking, you know, and I, if you know me and my wife will attest to this, I just never shut up, but uh, I literally um, lost my voice and had to be quiet for a few days and folks, I was finally speechless. Okay. So back on to me being serious. Uh, well, Welcome, everybody, to the Animals to the Max show. I'm so happy you're joining me. Today, we have an awesome guest, okay? We have Brian, and he is a current keeper at the Phoenix Zoo. He is a graduate of the EATM program at Moore Park College, which stands for the Exotic Animal Training and Management Program. He also worked at Zoo Montana. I had such a good time having Brian on the show, and it's kind of funny. He actually reached out to me and recommended a couple guests, and he told me a little bit about himself, and I thought, you know what? This guy would be really cool to have on the show. It's actually been some time since we've had a zookeeper on the show. We cover uh, what it was like going to Moorpark College, you know, training exotic animals. He, you know, has some excellent stories about training a lion, which I know you guys are going to love. We also talk about uh, something that's really controversial now, uh, just, you know, in this day and age regarding zoos, animals in captivity. Uh, PETA right now is currently on top of the Irwins for, uh, you know, Robert Irwin for bringing on animals on, on the uh, Tonight Show. So we just talk a little bit about that, um, you know, about people anti-zoo, pro-zoo, and that's actually kind of more near the end of the interview. But like I said, it was a very, very fascinating conversation. I know you're going to love it, especially for those of you who, you know, who want to pursue a career, maybe being a keeper. It is a difficult job. It's a hard business to crack into. So he gives some great insight on how he did it. Like I said, you guys are going to love it. Um, Before we get started, if you have not already, please make sure to hit subscribe to the show if you are listening to it on iTunes. Also, give us a rating and a comment. I seriously, it just, it really, really helps get the show out there. I'm loving it. And we're about a five star. Someone gave us a three star, which sucks. Um, (laughs) Like, why would you give me a three? Come on, guys. It's a show about animals. Anyway, get us a five-star re- uh, review. With that said, also make sure to follow me at Corbin Maxi on my Instagram and Facebook at Corbin Maxi, C-O-R-B-I-N-M-A-X-E-Y. And you can also send me requests if you head on over to CorbinMaxi.com. If you want to suggest a podcast guest, um, do so. You can just email me at CorbinMaxi.com. With that said, everybody, I hope you enjoy my interview with Brian, the zookeeper at the Phoenix Zoo. I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the show. And of course. I want listeners to know that you actually reached out to me to recommend a few guests. And then you told right. me, yeah, you told me a little bit about yourself. And I thought, wait, you should come on the show. You have a pretty, uh, <laughs> you've done some really cool things. Well, thank you. Yeah. Well, I've been, uh, you know, I, uh, I recently started at the Phoenix Zoo, um, and found myself, uh, with some time to listen to some podcasts while I was at work. So I was looking for different animal related podcasts and came across yours, um, a a couple of months ago and I've been literally binging them while I'm at work. And it was as I'm listening to uh, some of the amazing guests you've had on, um, 
I, I kept thinking of, I know, I know a couple people that, that would be good. Uh, so I wanted to, to give me your contact information. Yeah. Well, I'm so happy you did that. And I think you, I mean, we have a lot of listeners, a lot of zoo care professionals who listen to the show and I'm so happy you reached out because like you said, you, you're currently at the Phoenix zoo, but you worked yeah. at, yeah, you worked at zoo Montana. You also did something so cool. You went to Moore park college in the EATM program. Yeah, I'm a graduate of the Eaton program, um, and that was uh, two of the hardest and best years of my entire life. Um, <laughs> yeah. So we could talk about that for sure. Absolutely, yeah. So let's let's just dive into it. Have you always just had a fascination with animals? Yeah. Um, so from a super super young age, I was kind of the stereotypical animal kid that wanted to, grew up wanting to be a veterinarian. Um, and uh, grad after graduating from high school, I started working as a vet tech, um, and quickly while I was doing that, I quickly realized that I didn't want to be a doctor. I didn't want to have the $300,000 in student loans. And I didn't want the, the eight years, eight plus years of college and the, the, you know, all the additional responsibility that came, Mm -hmm. came along with being a a, a vet. Um, but I saw myself staying as a technician. Um, so I actually was a vet tech for seven or eight years. Um, and then I started, my eyes got opened up to how incredible exotics were. Um, exotic animals were. Mm-hmm. And you know, as a kid, I, I always had reptiles. I had snakes growing up. Um, there was a couple of years where I had a, about a five foot long. It was the biggest tegu I've ever worked with oh, about nice. five feet long. Um, much to my parents chagrin. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but that was, so that was kind of, uh, something that, that opened my, I, I've always loved exotics. Um, and then working as a technician, um, I realized I love working with dogs and cats, <clears throat> but I wanted to, um, I wanted to see what avenues were available to me to be a, a vet tech at a zoo. Uh-huh. Um, and my grandma, uh, growing up, my grandma had, had always sent me, um, I, I, I was, I kind of moved around a lot. My grandma was from Southern California. Um, and she, she would send me these newspaper clippings about the Edom program at Moore Park college. Um, and I would always read them and say, yeah, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Um, but then it was, it was just the right time in my life. She actually sent me a book called kicked, bitten and scratched. Yes. Um, and I, I, I read that book, um, and all of a sudden, just in the in the day or two that it took me to read that book, my entire life's mission became to go to that program. Yeah. Um, so I applied. The first year I didn't get in. It's a it's a lottery based system. Um, the exotic animal training management program is run at Moore Park College, which is a community college, um, and California rules say that you can't pick and choose who you let into a, a program at a community college. Okay. Um, so it's become a lottery based system. Oh, wow. so there's like 50, 50 something, um, 50 something positions that are available every year. Um, and, uh, back when I was going, there was a couple of hundred people that applied every year. So they literally draw your name out of a hat to get in. Um, and it took me, it took me two, two years of applying to get in. Wow. Um, and when I did, um, that I, I got into the Edom program still under the auspices of wanting to be a zoo vet tech. Um, and you know, that still might be some, some direction that I go, but when I was in the Edom program, my eyes got completely open to the world of training and animal training is the most incredible thing in the entire world. The things that, that animal trainers can do, um, it, they're absolutely amazing. Um, and so, uh, animal care and animal tr- training kind of became the new, the new path that I went down. Um, I was also able with my background as a vet tech was able to work closely with, uh, America's teaching zoo is the, is the zoo on Moore Park college's campus, uh-huh. um, that, that the Edom students, uh, work in and go to school in. 
um, and I was able to work closely with the vet there and the and the and the vet tech there uh, just because of my background as a vet tech. Wow. And that 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 is. Um, it made me realize that it's something that I want to do. Whether I I, I continue as a zookeeper, um, I continue as a, a, or I continue as a vet tech. I, I I would like to continue my my career in one of those paths. Um, but I realized quickly while I was in school there that there's this whole whole other avenue that I can go down that that will take both of those positions into account, and that's husbandry training. Uh huh. So. Husbandry training is training an animal to participate in their own healthcare, um, which is absolutely incredible to think that yeah. you can do that. Yeah. Um, and so, just for example, t- teaching an animal to get onto a scale voluntarily to get a weight, uh-huh. or teaching an animal to open its mouth so the vet can look in its at its teeth um, without uh, having to you know risk being bitten. Yeah. Um, or something even, which is absolutely crazy to me to think that I. That you could think that this can be done. Training an animal to sit still and let you draw its blood. Uh, yeah, I, I I can't even do that. Like I actually pass out with needles. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's just yeah. amazing. Uh, so that's I I realized that that's that that's a that's a career path that is available to do to combine my two passions of veterinary medicine and animal care into this whole other world of of animal training with that emphasis on on healthcare. That is so cool. And let's just go back really quick because when I was a, yeah. I think a junior in high school, yeah, it was in 2006 or 2005 maybe, I read that book, Kicked, Bitten, and Scratched. And it was, I think I read it in, in like two days too. I was hooked. And unfortunately, and if you mm-hmm. listen to the interview with Rick Schwartz, I, I didn't go to Moore Park College because I was right. with my own animals. But take me through that experience because I, 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 I want to live through you, man, because I didn't do it. And I want to know what that program's like because it has always fascinated me. Yeah, it's incredible. So um, you are literally going to school full time at college courses, college level courses for an associate's degree. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to school full time with some pretty heavy, heavy course loads. Um, animal diversity. We have to in, in the animal diversity class. We have to memorize the full taxonomy of about 400 species. Um, mm-hmm. So scientific names and how they relate to other animals. Um, so that was a pretty heavy class. Uh, animal behavior, animal training. Um, those are uh, health and safety, uh, anatomy and physiology, elementary vet, veterinary care. These are all classes that you have to take as an EDM student. Uh-huh. Um, but you also get to take some pretty cool classes as well. Um, there's classes in wildlife conservation, oh. um, wildlife education. So, uh, not only are you there going to school, but you're also there giving educational presentations, mm-hmm. um, to the zoo guests. And that's all part of a class. Um, when you're not in class, you are at the zoo, um, which the zoo itself is a classroom. Um, it's a class called zoo skills. Um, you're, you're literally at the zoo taking care of animals. So you, you get to the zoo at six 30 in the morning. Uh-huh. Um, you, you do all of the animal husbandry care, uh, cleaning cages, uh, working on enclosures, um, feeding in the morning. Um, and then after, you know, about two or three hours of that, you go to class, um, for three or four hours. And then you have a break for lunch where you are feeding yourself, but you're also feeding animals as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after lunch, you're, you, you're back in classes for the afternoon. And then when that's done, you're back to the zoo to feed out dinner and do last minute cleaning, um, training where you can. Uh, and then, and then you're done for the day. It's, it's about a you know 10 or 12 hour day every day for 22 months. Wow. And you like, don't you like miss out on holidays too, like Christmases yeah, and stuff um, like that? So there are, um, the, the, 
there are two vacations that you get as a student and it's a one week vacation in the summer and a one week vacation, um, over the winter break. Um, oh. and that's in the, in the 22 months that you're in the program, it's, the t- it's wow. two weeks scheduled off for the 22 months. Um, now there are days off, um, during the week, just as you're, as you can schedule yourself and that's more, more available as a second year. So the, when you're a first year, your core, your, your class load is a lot heavier, mm-hmm. um, than your animal care load. But then as a second year, um, you take some pretty intense classes as a second year as well. Um, but you have less classes and more animal related classes. So animal training is all on the zoo, things like that. Okay. And so which animals were you working with? Tell us a little bit about the animals that live at the, uh, the teaching zoo. Yeah. So they, there's a huge variety. They've got a lot of different, um, small, there's, you know, the small fuzzies, um, like, uh, rabbits, guinea pigs, um, and chinchillas, things like that. There's a mm-hmm. ton of different reptiles, um, but they also have um, bigger animals too. They have a couple of baboons. Um, siamang. Uh, they, uh, I, when I was there, there were siamangs. Um, okay. I think I think both of the siamangs have, have passed away due to old age. Okay. Um, there's a lot of capuchins, um, spider monkeys. There's lots of different primates. Um, a ton of parrots, um, mm. birds of prey. Um, I worked with a blue crane, which was an absolutely terrifying thing um, <laughs> when I first started because there's a giant beak and not and a, there's a giant beak and a small brain, and when you put those two together, it can be kind of kind of scary. But it was a, that was an incredible experience. Um, but they also have large carnivores. They have a hyena, a couple really? of lions. Um, after I left, um, there's they they've, they've got a couple of uh, tigers that they that they work with, um, coyotes. Uh, They've got singing dogs, some smaller cats like servals and bobcat and lynx. So wow. it's, it's it's a, a lot of a lot of different animals, and you get a really well-rounded animal care education. There. Now, when when you first got into the program, did you have one particular animal you had your eyes set out? Because aren't you like assigned a certain animal? You you do get assigned certain animals, and that's an actual really that's a really good question because people will come into that program with one thought. So if, uh, somebody coming in the program will come into the program saying, I just want to work with carnivores. I just want to work with carnivores. Mm-hmm. Um, big cats, for example. Yep. Um, and then you get into that program and your eyes get opened up to everything else. So one of my classmates was that was that way. Um, she came into the program w- w- wanting to just work with carnivores and her eyes got completely and totally opened up to the world of birds. Um, and she is now, in her own words, a bird person where wow. she is a, a, a bird keeper at a zoo. Um, and so you, you get, that's, what's so amazing about that program is you can have your own ideas about what you want to do, but then it completely just based on how the program is, it, it forces you to kind of open your eyes to other avenues within the, within the field. And, um, you might fall in love with working with something else. Okay. So what, so, I mean, I'm just going to be honest. If I was going in the program, I would want to work with the hyenas. I think that'd be so cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so when I was there, uh, we had a very old hyena named Savuti and he was incredibly smart. Um, he, uh, he had a behavior where you could tell him, um, show me something. Uh-huh. It was a, call a, it's called a show me something behavior where he will just, when you, when you give him that cue, he will pick from his entire lineage of behaviors and just pick one and do one. Does it, it's, you're not telling him which behavior to do. You're telling him to pick a behavior to do. Really? He'll go do it. Yeah. Um, and you can tell him and you can keep giving him that beha- that cue and, and he'll just keep going through different behaviors. Um, it was a kind of a really cool thing. Um, he also, he was an animal that had a, a voluntary blood draw behavior, which when I first saw that was incredible. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was, it, hyenas are, are incredibly smart animals for sure. Yeah. And that's, that's something that it, 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 it seems like sca- animals that are scavengers. Um, 
hyenas. Well, they're predator. They're pretty big predators as well as well, but they, they have, a, they have a scavenger mentality. Um, and things like vultures, uh, animals that, that, that scavenge, they, they're incredibly intelligent because they have to use their brains to solve puzzles, to get food. Um, and so they're, that's, it's, they're incredibly smart, smart animals. Wow. What was one animal? Okay. So you get into the program, which animal were you assigned or which ones did you? Yeah. So, um, your animal, you, you, when you, when you first start getting assigned animals, it's, um, towards the summer after the second years are graduating. Um, and you have to work, you, you're, you're, you have to work with four classes of animals. It's a carnivore, an herbivore, a bird, and a primate. Okay. Those are the four classes of animals that you get assigned wait, wait. to work with. Reptile? Where are my reptile fans? <laughs> right. No. So, so within that class, so, so they've got a black throated monitor named Brutus, and okay. so he would be classified as a carnivore. Okay. There you go. Yep. Okay. If yep. that makes sense. Yep, um, yep. Uh, I had a I had a classmate that trained our leopard tortoise, and he was classified under an herbivore. Okay. Very yeah. very nice. Okay. So it's those it's those classifications that you're assigned to, uh-huh. um, and then after as long as you train and care for those four classes, then the other the other uh, animals don't necessarily have to fall in. So, you, you know, like, I was assigned to eight or nine animals o- over my over my time there. Um, so, and, and as long as you have those four classes s- somewhere in your education, you've fulfilled your requirements there. Um, but what happens is with those initial first four animals that you get assigned, it's heavily based on a lot of different factors, especially things like grades, attendance, uh, your behavior and things while you're on the zoo. They want to make sure that, um, that you're able to take care of and, and be responsible enough to take care of these animals. Um, so the people that have the highest points, if you will, get assigned the animals that they request first. Okay. Um, and then the people that have the lowest points, um, get assigned the animals that are kind of left over. Do they, yeah. Do, um, do, do they have like a, I don't know, like if you show up late for class, like, okay, Brian, you're going to take care of a cockroach today. <laughs> they, they, they do. They do have cockroaches. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's, it's, I mean, it's not necessarily that, that, that bad, but it's, it's to the point where you, 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 you don't get necessarily your first choices if you don't, if you don't have as, as high a points as other people in your class. Okay. Now, which, what did you have high on your list that you wanted to work with? Yeah, so I uh, as a first year, I was always following around my second years that were working with um, with the the baboon, a, 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 an olive baboon named Olive. Uh, that's okay. an original name. <laughs> um, uh, she was pretty incredible, so I had her on my list. Um, I was terrified of parrots, um, and I did not want to work with a parrot when I was first there. So I, that's I asked for Delilah, the blue crane, because um, she was a bird that um, she was a bird that I, I felt I would not be as worried about, which, uh-huh. uh, turned out to be not as true. <laughs> um, I asked for Hazel or coyote, um, oh. as my carnivore. Um, and I asked, uh, who was my, and, and Rupee, our Indian crested porcupine. He was my herbivore that I requested. Oh, nice. Um, and I was a pretty, I was pretty high up on, on the list. So I ended up getting all, all of my first choices on the list that I requested. Uh-huh. Um, and so those were the, those were the four. Um, while I was, while I was there, I also worked with our New Guinea singing dogs, um, a couple of our servals, um, a capuchin, um, our sugar gliders, uh, a couple of our birds of prey. Uh, there's probably other ones in there that I, that I am forgetting about, but I worked with a lot of animals while I was in the Eden program. Wow. That's, is there one that just sticks out in particular that was your favorite? Um, Oh yeah, so I, I I completely skipped over my favorite one. My favorite one was Kiara, our African lioness. Oh, um, that's a big one to skip. Yeah, <laughs> that's a big one. That's a big one to skip. Um, and the reason she was my favorite is because the things I did with her were directly related with, um, 
my career choices. And she's, she was one that made me fall in love with what I want to do for the rest of my life. And that's, like I said, husbandry training. Um, and me and my co-trainers, um, we were able to train her from scratch. So not, and not, not ever being trained before, um, a voluntary blood draw behavior from, it was, uh, absolutely incredible. I've got video of it. I can send to you. Yeah. Um, if you'd like to see it. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so we, we trained her to, uh, kind of, because you have to keep in mind that we're students while we're doing all of this. So there's, mm-hmm. there, there's a lot of precautions that have to go into anything that we do. Um, so, uh, it's all protected contact, obviously, um, oh. with, with the large carnivores. Um, and so, uh, we trained her to walk into, it wasn't really a shoot, but it was kind of a, a narrow hallway. Uh-huh. Um, and then we desensitized her to touching an area around, uh, her, uh, her the, uh, one of the veins on her back legs. Mm-hmm. Um, we first desensitized her to, to touching that area. This is all with positive reinforcement. So she constantly has the ability to walk away if she wants to. Uh-huh. Um, there's nothing negative happening to her. Um, she's getting fed meat the entire time. Some of her favorite treats were things like chicken neck. Um, and, uh, we used a Nebraska brand meat, which is basically a, a, a exotic feline diet. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's being fed the entire time. We desensitized her to us touching around the area. And then once she didn't react to that at all, we moved to poking her in that area with uh, something kind of dull, like a ballpoint pen. Um, and then when when she w- didn't react to that anymore, we would uh, actually start using a, 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 a like a, a pointed like a what would we use a, pa- a paper clip. So it's a little bit sharper oh. than a, pa- a ballpoint pen. Uh-huh. Um, and then you start to to add a little bit more pressure behind something like that. So it it it, it hurts a little bit, but when they don't react to it, then you know that there's there's nothing uh, they're not going to react. So the paper clip hurts more than a needle, uh-huh. if that makes sense. Uh-huh. So if uh-huh. you kind of when you're actually going to draw blood, you take a step back in your training. So the needle will hurt less than what you were doing with the paperclip. Um, and then you, you poke her with the needle and we're actually able to get a voluntary blood draw without her moving, without her reacting, um, without with, with it being 100% positive um, the entire time. Wow. And that must have taken a lot of patience. How long did it take her to get that voluntary that, – that, that Yeah, so um, you're, you're, normally, you're normally assigned to an animal for a semester – Um, so that's a couple of months, Mm -hmm. um, with that behavior, I was assigned to her one semester and then, uh, another one of my classmates was assigned to her the following semester and we got special, special permission to continue to work that behavior together. So it took us two semesters. So I think it was what, probably about five or six months that we we trained that behavior. That is so cool. I mean, that must feel like just this big accomplishment. You know what I mean? You must were overwhelmed when that finally, you know what I mean? When she finally trusted you enough. Yeah, it was, it was absolutely incredible. And so our, our, our animal training instructor is kind of with us the entire time. Um, just, you know, going over what the next steps are, how did the last steps go? Um, what didn't work, what did work, um, and supervising us at the same time when we're doing things. Um, and he, uh, this is, uh, Gary Wilson. Um, he, when we finally got blood, you could tell he was excited that we finally got blood from her, but he wanted to play it off like he wasn't excited. So he's like, "Oh, yeah, that's 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 cool." Oh man! <laughs> but, you know, it was. But you know, uh, my co-trainer and I, we were ecstatic. It was an absolutely incredible thing to do. Yeah, I mean, like I said, it takes a lot of patience. Is there one animal that you worked with that you were not a fan of? I mean, minus the the bird you were talking about, the crane. <laughs> no, so Delilah, uh, she was incredible. Just there was a, a story going around about a different type of crane, or it might have been a stork, um, that had uh, uh, seriously harmed somebody by putting their beak through their eye. Oh my um, and god! I, and, <laughs> and I heard that. 
right. my god! I, I heard that story. I heard that story right when I had first been assigned to Delilah, so I was very concerned because oh. Delilah, she's got a very big beak. She's a blue crane, an African blue crane. Um, they're the international or the na- the national bird of South Africa. They're incredibly okay. gorgeous birds, um, and uh, they're also called the cobra cobra cranes just because of the way that their head is shaped Uh um but they've got a huge beak and she was not the brightest bird um, so i was very (laughs) cautious um but we did some really amazing training with her we were the first class that um she didn't have her wings clipped for um so we worked with we worked with uh, one of her staff members to um start the beginning she's a seven or eight year old bird um so she's not super young um to start the first she, she was captive bred um so she had never needed to or wanted to fly before so we we got the we got the opportunity to to start to train her to fly and it was really really cool thing to do and it's something that i still look back on and uh it was something that i i still fall back on for for animal training what did i do with delilah how did i do that with delilah that is so cool how how is the atmosphere there is it like really competitive with other students are there like a lot of I mean, did you get along with people or I just feel like there, you get a lot of there, bunch of animal people and you're just going to be a lot of budding heads. So how was that? There were some times that it felt like high school again. Um, but I, I would talk to some of my classmates about how the Edom program trains you to do a lot of things. It trains you to work with animals. It trains you to work around animals. It trains you about animals. But I feel like the biggest thing that the Edom program taught people was how to deal with other people Um, because you're in this you're in this program that's very high stress you're with these people that you've never met before just about all day every day for two years straight um, working through an incredibly stressful situation even though it was stressful it was incredibly rewarding Um, so yeah there's there's some some drama that happens there's some you know it feels like high school at times but um, the relationships and bonds that I formed in the Eden program well, I will never find that again. Some of my best friends in my entire life were classmates in the Eden program. And I consider them family now. Were you one of the only males in the program? Okay, so we we uh, our our class was kind of weird. Um, we started with fifty forty. We started with forty nine uh-huh. um, on day one, um, and then very quickly within the first semester, there was eleven that failed out of the program because they couldn't keep up with the. With the uh, academic rigors of it, okay, um, and that it, it for some reason our class seemed to be kind of a the the, the classes subs. I, I graduated in 2016, so this was in 2014. Um, that was that first the the last part of 2014 was that first semester, um, and it seems like that the 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 subsequent classes after us they have not had as as big of a a big of a drop off. Okay. Um, yeah, uh, but so we graduated with 36 total, um, and there was only three guys in the program that, wow. that graduated. We started we started with more, but there was only three that graduated. So was it pretty easy to get a girlfriend then? <laughs> <laughs> I get that question a lot. There was a, a lot of a lot of girls in my class were were already with people, uh-huh. um, and I, I I didn't go into the Edom program looking for that. Yeah. Um, but there are a lot of uh, Edom born relationships for Ooh, sure. I feel like this could be like a good reality show. It has been actually. There was a show um, on Animal Planet. This was a long time ago. I think it was called More Park Twenty Four Seven. Oh, okay. Um, it, it ran. For, it ran for two seasons, I think. Um, mm. 
So I'm not sure. I, I don't think you can find it. I don't think it's like available to stream or anything. But there was a a, a show about the Eden program. That's so cool. You know who I want to meet one day is Clarence the Tortoise. I've been following him for years. <laughs> Clarence is incredible. He's got a really cool story because he was actually a uh, he was a a, a wild caught Galapagos okay. a tortoise. Uh-huh. Um, he was he was he was about ten years old when he was brought over as part of uh, the captive breeding program um, to help uh, their the the SSP, the species survival plan. Mm -hmm. And he moved around a lot. He was at the, I think he was at the Houston zoo for a while and he went to San Diego and LA and they finally settled at at, at America's teaching zoo for, he's been there for, I want to say 15 years now, something like that. I'm not sure about the numbers totally, but Mm. he's, he's definitely helped to train a lot of, a lot of more park students for sure. That's awesome. Was there any, was there like a time when it was so overwhelming when you were like, I just can't do this. Um, there was, there was points that, that you get to that, um, you know, you're, you're, like I said, you're doing it 20, just about 24 seven, because there's, there's times when, um, there was a time when we had a, a water, our water Buffalo Walter, um, <laughs> as, as he, he was an old, he was an old guy, but he had, he had a, a severe intestinal thing going on. Um, and it was something that actually ended up, uh, forcing him to pass away. Um, but we had to, we had to be there with him all night. Um, so it, there, there, and that happened a couple of other times with, with other animals where students had to be there all night. Um, and so it can, it can be a 24, 24, seven thing. And when you're, when you're at your, your, your rope, it can be, uh, it can be tough, but then you come back again and you start working with your favorite animal or, or you, and it completely turns it around. Wow. Wow. There's, there was never a time where I thought about quitting. Yeah. I feel like that program is perfect just to prepare you for the zoo field. I can't imagine any other program that, I mean, right. it's just, yeah. Yeah. I, I tell, I tell people that I still got to go to work on Christmas. I still got to go to work on new year's. I got to go to work every holiday. Cause animals don't stop eating on those holidays. <laughs> animals don't stop going to the bathroom cause it's a holiday. They still got to be cleaned up after they still got to be taken care of. They still have to get their medications. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it doesn't stop just because, uh, the rest of the world stops. Yeah. Was there one thing and we can move on cause I know you've done, done other stuff, but was there one thing that shocked you when you got into the program that maybe you didn't know? About does, does that make sense? Like working with animals, something you learned or something that you didn't expect? Well, yeah, like I said, I mean, I went into the program just wanting to get through it to to learn about what it was like to work in a zoo and to make um, to make connections with the zoo world because I wanted to become a zoo vet tech. Um, and I, you know, I knew that animal training was something that happened at zoos, but I had no idea that that was to what extent animal training happened at zoos. Mm-hmm. Um, just for you know general management and you know things like animal training is done for enrichment animal training is done for education so i I had no idea to what extent and it was something that even though i didn't know about it when i first got into it it's something that's completely shaped my my career and the rest of my life that's awesome man so so right after graduation i'm assuming you, you start applying to zoos across the country right yeah you start applying everywhere and it it kind of puts you at odds a little bit um, it's kind of a, an uphill battle because you're graduating with somewhere between like, like I said, my class graduated with 36, uh-huh. um, but other classes have graduated within their forties, uh, you know, 40 something people. So you're graduating at the same time with 40 other people that are also looking for jobs at the same time you are. Mm. Um, and I know this gets said all the time, but if you're looking for a job in the zoo field, you really have to be prepared to move to where the job is. Um, and that was something that, um, I was prepared for. Um, but I wanted, I was, I was still at this point, I I was still kind of looking for vet tech jobs. Uh Um, 
and so I actually stayed on. Um, I got I got a vet tech job at a, after I graduated. I got a, a tech job at a small animal hospital in Ventura County, um, which is where the college is. Um, and I, I continued to volunteer at American Teaching. This is not a normal path for Edom graduates at all, by any means. Mm-hmm. Um, I continued to volunteer at American Teaching with the vet team um, as a volunteer vet tech and um, kind of a student mentor. Um, and I actually did that for about a, a year and a half before um, I ended up realizing that. If I want to get – the entire time I was I was applying for, for vet tech jobs. I, I have my vet tech credentials. I'm a credentialed technician. Um, but you know, they're, even as a technician – for even as a technician at a zoo, they're looking for zoo experience. And uh-huh. the EDEM program gives you a, quite a bit of zoo experience. But you know, a lot of places want paid zoo experience to get yeah. a job, which can be very difficult, which can be very difficult to get. Even as a, you know, a paid internship doesn't – always fulfill those requirements. So, um, for your first zoo job, it, 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 you really have to think about moving. And so I, I started looking at keeper jobs around and your first zoo job, it does happen, but your first zoo job is as a keeper is not going to be at the San Diego zoo. And a lot <laughs> yeah. of people think it will be, yeah. a lot of people go for that. And it's, it's, and, it, and especially with, you know, the, the, America's teaching zoo is only about two and a half hours north of San Diego. So it's very close. Uh-huh. So a lot of, we, we go to the San Diego zoo for, for projects. We go to the, we, we go to the LA zoo. There's lots of zoos around the area that we go visit and, and intern at while you're in the program. Uh-huh. Um, so people think that when you graduate that they can go just start working at San Diego zoo right away. And it doesn't happen. There's a lot of Eden grads that work at the San Diego zoo and safari park, but that was, it was not their first job or, or hardly any of them. It was their first job when they worked there. Uh-huh. Um, so I saw this position at, zoo montana which is in billings montana and i had never been to montana before but i had a classmate that was working there um and so i talked with her um and that's another thing that when you're looking for a zoo job networking is incredibly important um it's i'm not going to say it's all about who you know but knowing somebody is very helpful oh yeah same with same right. with almost anything i mean media right. like or just any job right. yeah yeah so I, I i applied for this job at zoo montana which was it's an incredibly small zoo um, but they work with some really, really cool animals and I ended up getting it. So I picked up my entire life and I moved 19 hours North to, uh, what at the time felt like a winter hell <laughs> because I'm a, I'm a, I'm an, I'm an Arizona boy. You know, I grew up, uh, I grew up in, in, in the Arizona desert where right now it's 115 degrees outside. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, it was, it was a, a very huge culture shock, especially coming from Southern California um, and Arizona to, I'm going to say rural Montana. Billings is the biggest city in Montana, but it's still smaller than, you know, most cities. Okay. Wow. <laughs> and how, how little, yeah. how little uh, is the zoo? I've never been there. Um, so zoo Montana, it's, it's, it's a big zoo in the, in when it, when it comes to acreage wise, there's lots of land and what they kind of zoo Montana's philosophy is that they, they're, they're not going to have a ton of animals, but the animals that they do have, they're going to do excessively well. Um, and when I first went to visit, I was so impressed with the size of the enclosures, the naturalness of the enclosures. And you see that at a lot of zoos around the country. Um, but I had never seen it kind of to this scale. Um, just because with how much land that they have and the, the small amount of animals that they have, the, the exhibits that they do have are huge. They're massive. I'm not talking like safari park status, but, uh-huh. um, they're, 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 they're gigantic. Um, and so they, their philosophy at Zoo Montana, their philosophy is that they're going to only have animals that can withstand the temperature extremes that Montana has. Oh, um, that's so, smart. right. So the, it can be you know in in 
sub-zero uh, temperatures in the wintertime, and it can get up to into the hundreds during the summertime. So there's some massive temperature shifts. Uh-huh. Um, so they have animals that uh, – the director of Montana, Jeff, he'll tell you it's the, the 45th parallels of latitude okay. around the world. Um, so that's the, 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 the same parallel that Billings is on. Um, so they'll have you know Asian animals that fall on that same parallel. So they have like uh, uh, Amur tigers and talkin, uh-huh. uh-huh. um, things that can handle the super cold, the red pandas. Okay. Um, but then they also have like, you know, things that are Montana native, like they've got wolverines, um, wolves, grizzly bears, um, lynx, tons of birds of prey. These are all animals that can can stay outside year round um, in in the in the crazy winters that Montana has. Now they do kind of deviate from that with their education animal collection. They got a ton of reptiles and things, but those are all kept inside um, year round, and they're used for their education and ambassador programs. Can we go back to the to the wolverine? Because not many zoos have wolverines. No, there's not a lot of zoos that have wolverines, um, and uh, so that the wolverine zoo Montana has, they're actually. Uh, they, they came from uh, facilities in Europe, so they, they're, they're part of the European Wolverine SSP, if you will. Oh, wow. Um, and so there, uh, there's not a lot of zoos. There are a few zoos in the U.S. that have wolverines, but there's not a lot of zoos that are having success in breeding them. So there's lots of uh, lots of kind of working to figure out what these wolverines need to breed. And that, uh, when I was there, I just left – I left Zoo Montana back in April, um, and the winter before that, they had uh, – they had started to show some breeding behaviors, but it wasn't successful. So hopefully this year they'll, they'll have success with that. Did you ever work with them? I just wonder what they would be like. I, to work I, with. I didn't work with them. I was part of the, um, I, I was a keeper on the wetlands, uh, area. So I took care of the North American river otter, okay. um, beaver, uh, all their waterfowl, um, and all their birds of prey. Um, and then I was also, I was a relief for the wetlands area and I was a relief keeper for, um, the education area. So all the reptiles, um, small mammals that are kept inside, um, a couple of small birds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I worked in two different areas. Okay, nice, nice. Was there one particular animal that you just absolutely loved working with at Zoo Montana? Yeah, it, it's really weird because I never would have thought about it, but I absolutely fell in love with our kookaburra named Sydney. Oh, they're um, cool. Yeah, she was in. She's an incredible animal, and I, she's the, the the one that was uh, surprisingly to me, you know, working with the otters and the beavers. That the, the kookaburra was the hardest one for me to leave when I left. Oh, really? Yeah. interesting i mean could you get Mm -hmm. into um you know like call i'm sure that's like the famous thing like during education yeah and it was really it was really right um it's really difficult being a kookaburra keeper when you can't mimic their call to get them to call Uh (laughs) Uh, i'm terrible i can't roll my r's i can't roll my r's so it's really hard to get a kookaburra to call if you can't do that noise (laughs) right so i actually uh started to to train and condition her to call when i whistled Mm -hmm. um so all i had to do was whistle and it would set her off calling Oh, nice. I brought them on TV before, and it's amazing when they just, you know, they'll light yeah, up the whole cool. studio. That's so cool. So how long were you at Zoo Montana? A year? A couple right. years? I, I was there. I was at Zoo Montana for a little under a year and a half. Um, and I lived through I lived through a full winter there. I lived through the um, being a, an outdoor keeper in, during the polar vortex <laughs> uh, that <laughs> happened this winter. And it was – for for this uh, Arizona boy, I, 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 I didn't really – I couldn't handle it, man. Um, I love Zoo Montana. I love Montana in general, but I am not a cold weather person. Um, so I started to look for, um, I started to look for the, the kind of the first position that I could um, back home. Um, and so all my family's here in Phoenix. Uh, I've got a ton of friends here in Phoenix. I grew up here, uh, so I looked for the the first position that I could 
um, to get back home. And that was uh, in, at Phoenix Zoo in their equine and, and farm uh, strength. Um, so I'm a farm equine uh, keeper here now uh-huh. um, under the under the auspices that uh, when, uh, when, a, when a position uh, in, a, in a different area, either as a keeper or possibly as a vet tech um, opens up, I'll, I'll be uh, hoping to move into that area. Oh, nice. So that is your so that would be your 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 dream right there. Right. Wow. Yeah, so Phoenix Zoo has an incredible uh, collection of carnivores. They've got an incredible collection of ambassador animals. Um, they've got an incredible collection of just the, the entire the entire collection is is amazing at the Phoenix Zoo. Um, so just about any string, I am uh, would be happy to work with for wow. sure. That's awesome. Do you have any advice for people listening to this who want to pursue a career being a zookeeper or a zoo vet tech? Definitely. Yeah. So. Uh, you, you, you really have to do your best to show people how hard you're willing to work. Um, and so you're going to have to, uh, to, to, to start that out with, uh, you really need to show it by, by going to school. Um, if, if you go to school and you have your bachelor's degree, uh, that starts to show facilities that you're, you're willing to put in the work to do that. Um, now, I'm kind of a practice what you preach kind of person because I actually don't have a bachelor's degree. I only have a, I've got an associate's degree, mm-hmm. but that's what uh, the kind of the Eden program will help to mitigate that. You're still going to have a lot easier time getting into the Zoopiel if you have a bachelor's degree. Um, and then after, after that, uh, you, you might, you may have to do internships. Um, a lot of people get into the zoo field by doing internships, whether they're paid or unpaid. Um, and when you're there doing internships, be the first one to pick up a broom, be the first one to pick up a rake. Um, and ask constantly ask questions because if you ask questions, you're learning and people will see that. So in the Eden program, there's the, there's a, a kind of a saying that's it's, they say, be somebody. Um, and there's, you know, there's a, at, at times people will say, Oh, somebody will take out that trash or somebody will go rake that yard, but you have to be somebody if you want, you have to be the somebody that does that if you yeah. really want to go somewhere in this field. So be somebody when you're working, um, and, you know, if you, if you keep at it and, um, go to, go to as many, if you can go to conferences, network with people, um, the AZK conference, the American association of zookeepers conference is actually happening right now. Um, that's a, that's a great conference to go to the association of zoos and aquariums conference, AZA. Um, that's a great one to go to. Um, in a couple of months, I'm going to the association of zoo vet techs conference. Um, right so up. networking, um, conferences are a great way to network um go to your local zoo and volunteer that's a great way to network and and meet people within the facility um because like i said it's not always who you know but knowing somebody definitely helps um get into the field so whatever you can do to to get people to know you and to to know people in the field that's only going to help you in your career absolutely okay let's have some off the wall questions or just some fun you ready for this yeah go ahead okay what's the stupidest thing a zoo guest has ever said to you (laughs) <laughs> oh my gosh um so i it happened it happens a lot um but when you're working with servals servals are incredible animals when you're working with servals people constantly call them baby cheetahs okay and okay. that just always always makes me roll my eyes <laughs> um, the other thing that rolls that makes me constantly roll my eyes is are the are the guests that um when you're in an exhibit um when you're in an exhibit cleaning or doing whatever and people guests will walk by and, and make the joke oh hey look it's a human exhibit and it's just, oh, you hear that joke so much, so much as a keeper, it just gets so old. Um, but that, you know, that's people say that all the time. Um, I had a, a guest call, um, which it was, it was some, it was some sort of primate that I was working with. It was, I think it was, uh, I was, 
outside of the Simon exhibit and they called it a black bear. So it's, <laughs> it's kind of it's kind of different. <laughs> it's a little bit different. So yeah, I think uh, guess we'll uh, guess we'll say some pretty pretty interesting things. I think the funniest one I heard is when a guest um, she was really disappointed that they that the zoo had clipped the uh, penguins' wings so they couldn't fly. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> I mean. But think about it, a flying penguin, that could be a pretty uh, pretty terrifying thing. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Okay, what is the stinkiest poo you've ever cleaned up? Oh, wow. Um, otter otter poop is disgusting. Anything that eats fish, okay. um, is it's just gross. Um, otter poop is very slimy. Uh, it It's never kind of formed or solid. It's, just, it's nasty. I hate it. It was, it was gross. Was there, is there one animal that, you never want to work with at the zoo. I don't know. You never say never because, uh, you know, there's, there's an animal that like, like I said, I haven't, I haven't worked with parrots. Um, but while I was in, in the Edom program, I, I got, I went in there not wanting to work with parrots. Um, but then I saw, you know, what my classmates were doing with them and the relationships you can form with parrots were, um, so you never really say never. Um, not to say I wouldn't work with a parrot now. Um, cause I probably would, um, but I don't think there's any animal that I would not want to work with. Oh, that's a very, very good answer. Okay. Uh, have you had any close calls, any bad bites, scratches? Oh my gosh. Um, I, I, I haven't been had any, well, the worst bite I've ever had was as a technician being bitten by a chihuahua. That's, that's the worst Ooh. bite I've ever had. Chihuahuas are pretty nasty little dogs. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, 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 the closest, the closest call that I've, I've had as a, as a keeper um, was with our, uh, Indian crested porcupine rupee. Uh-huh. Um, he had a, a dirt floored, uh, exhibit that allowed him to natural, uh, naturally burrow. Uh-huh. Um, and he, I think he had a little evil streak in him because he'd always dig his burrows right where we had to walk. <laughs> um, and he, always, I don't know if it's just the way he was, but he would make his burrows pretty shallow. Um, so there was a couple of times where I, fell through the burrows that he had dug. Oh, you know, I'm, a, I'm a taller, bigger guy. Um, so uh, walking walking through his exhibit was always kind of terrifying because the, the ground was literally hollow with the burrows that he had dug out. Um, <laughs> and there was it, we walked in, um, and I saw him go down into his burrow as I was falling into a burrow. Luckily, I didn't fall on top of him because that yeah. would have been uh, – crested porcupine quills are, are – oh they're capable of killing a lion. So that's pretty terrifying. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so that was, that was, that was probably my closest call. Luckily another, nothing happened, but uh, it could have been bad. Do you have like a most embarrassing moment working at the zoo, maybe in front of the public? Um, I, I fell into, I fell into the otter pond when I was working because <laughs> um, uh, it was, and of course, when, when you, you do something stupid, you look up to see who saw it. That's the first thing you do. Right. <laughs> yes. Um, and I, I look up and there's a family, it's a mom and dad and four kids and they're just sitting there. Like the kids had their eyes, their eyes were all big. Um, and, and mom was, she had a concerned look on her face, but the dad was just cracking up <laughs> and I'm like, all right, okay. Yeah, it's it's funny. I'm I'm good. It's funny. I'm soaking wet and covered in otter poop now, but it's great. <laughs> <laughs> that is so funny. Oh man. Yeah. Well, Brian, do you have any last like anything else you want to say on the platform? Any words of encouragement? I know a lot of keepers, and actually a lot of keepers email me too because they're having trouble, you know, getting jobs and you know the the advice. Any words of encouragement for the listeners? Yeah. So um, we we talked about it a little bit. Don't don't pigeon your pigeonhole yourself into wanting to work with one species or one class of animals because 
every animal is incredible. Every animal is amazing. Um, so don't just look for jobs working with carnivores because if you, if you, if you seclude yourself to that, you get rid of so many other opportunities working at a zoo. So if you want to work with carnivores, that's amazing. Carnivores are awesome. Um, but maybe you got to get a job as a hoof, as a hoofstock keeper first or as a bird keeper first. Um, and, and then, and then get, get your experience in a zoo that way. You're just, and, and when you do that, you might realize that you, you're falling, you fall in love with, with hoofstock or birds or, or insects or ambassador animals, reptiles. Um, they're all, every animal is incredible. Um, so don't pigeonhole yourself in, into wanting to work with one species and make that cause you to miss out on the amazing opportunity to work at a zoo. Um, and we didn't, we didn't really talk about it much, but, uh, as, as a keeper, I think it's really important that keepers stay informed with the political climate that is going uh, going on around this industry right now. Um, oh. Stay informed with what's what's going on um, because there are a lot of people that don't want us to get up every morning and do the things that we get to do. Um, as a keeper, um, doing what you do, working with ambassador animals, um, that's ambassador animals is one that's kind of been under fire in a lot of areas right now. Oh yeah. Um, travel, traveling animals, things like that. So stay informed, um, and be ready to be ready to, to talk to people that may not completely agree with what you're doing. Um, cause that's a, that's a, unfortunately that's a huge part of this industry right now. Yeah. Let's actually talk about it. I mean, we're on no time okay. constraints. Yeah. yeah. Cause they're under, right. I can't even believe it. Um, I, Peter was recently after, um, you know, Robert Irwin and the uh, tonight mm-hmm. show and it's just, it is getting crazy. I mean, just with, you know, people and activists and what do you say to those people? I mean, what do you being a zookeeper? Um, I, I am, I'm lucky enough to have not been confronted directly about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm the first one to tell people what I do for a living, but I know that there's a lot of keepers, um, especially people that work at the more, shall we say, controversial SeaWorld, uh, <laughs> like SeaWorld, right? Yes. So, so trainers at SeaWorld, you know, I know a couple of trainers at SeaWorld that don't tell people where they work because they don't want to have those, they don't want to have those conversations. Yes. Um, and that's, that's, that's very unfortunate. That's and really, really quick to butt in. I have a friend named Chrissy. She's a senior Aquarius at, uh, at SeaWorld in San Antonio, but she literally, um, just because the blackfish, she brings an mm-hmm. extra change of shirt. Like she can't go to the grocery store and pick yeah. up like a prescription without having to throw on a shirt. Like that, that's right. not SeaWorld because she'll get people who curse her out like in the middle of a grocery store. So SeaWorld, uh, even if you don't work at SeaWorld, SeaWorld's one that, um, I stay, as familiar as I can with what's going on with SeaWorld politically, because that's kind of the, they're, they're on the front lines for this battle. Um, if you will. Um, so I, I always have the, 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 the things that I can, I can combat that with. So things like SeaWorld say has saved, uh, 35,000 animals in their, in their rescue and rehabilitation program. Um, SeaWorld has donated SeaWorld in their Bush Gardens SeaWorld Conservation Fund has donated millions of dollars to conservation organizations all over the world. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're, 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 they're not just a, a, they're not, they're not at all a, a facility that is just having whales and dolphins do flips for everybody's entertainment. And they're definitely not in it just for the money. Mm-hmm. I think that's good too. And I mean, SeaWorld for me as a kid from Idaho, my landlocked state, I loved going to SeaWorld as a kid. It like sparked my interest in, you know, marine animals. And I just think, you know, in the exhibits and, you know. Well, that's the, that's the whole reason for any zoo or aquarium for existing, in my opinion, is to inspire people that 
would not otherwise be inspired to help wildlife. Uh-huh. And that's exactly what SeaWorld does. Um, if I, if I hadn't gone to SeaWorld as a kid, um, you know, I might, I may not be as inspired to do what I am as, as I am now. Um, if I haven't watched people, if I didn't watch people like, uh, Jack Hanna or Jeff Corwin or Steve Irwin as a kid, I may not be doing what I am now. Um, so that is, that is the, the only, or not the only, but the biggest reason that facilities like zoos and aquariums exist is to inspire people to want to help wild animals. Yeah, you know, I once asked my my really good friend, who's my Today Show producer, why he does these segments, and I didn't. I just just honestly asked him, you know, why do you produce these animal segments? And he said, you know, animals are having such a rough time right now out in the wild that if we're able to just educate one person or change their minds about something, or maybe even I don't know, have something do something as simple as recycle or not buy a wildlife product then we have right. done our job. And I, I love that. And that's what I feel like going on mm-hmm. these TVs, you know, these shows, if I'm able to change someone's perception or to educate people. And I, I think that we've like done our job. And I think with keepers too, you guys right. do it daily. Right. That's, and that's definitely what we go for. You know, you tell people to, to recycle or turn their lights off when they leave a room or turn their faucet off when they're brushing their teeth. And that's, that's how, that's how you can kind of get through to, to little kids, especially and how they can, can help out immediately. That's uh-huh. a good thing. Kids get, I, I've had parents tell me that, um, my, my kid will come and yell at me if I don't turn the faucet off when I'm brushing my teeth. And I'm like, well, that's what we're here for. Yeah. <laughs> because I want, I want, we want kids to, to do stuff like that. And we want them to feel like they're empowered to actually make a difference and to help because then maybe as an adult, um, they'll be able to do something that really makes a difference. Mm-hmm. Are there some animals that you feel like aren't fit for captivity? Absolutely. I mean, you're not going to keep a blue whale in captivity because there's no way that <laughs> yeah. there's no way that you can have enough space. Yeah. Um, I feel like there's a lot of, there's a lot of animals that are unfit, just like, um, like uh, you can't find mountain gorillas in zoos anywhere. Oh, um, yeah. cause they, they just, it's, 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 impo- it's almost impossible for zoos to be able to, um, one, their nutritional, uh, requirements are incredibly difficult. Yeah. Um, and it, it, that's one that it, it is difficult, but, um, they're like a great white sharks. Um, that's oh, something yeah. that has been proven that doesn't, doesn't do well in captivity. So they're not, they're not kept in captivity at all. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that there's any zoo in the world that would, or any reputable zoo in the world that would keep an animal and realize it's not doing well and then continue to keep an animal like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that most people will use that argument for things like orcas and elephants to say that, um, those animals are unfit for captivity. And, you know, I, I think that orcas and elephants are so well managed that their people that are detractors, uh, animal rights activists and things just use those animals as kind of their flagship, if you will, for, for their arguments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, because they are so charismatic, you know, I mean, right. they're, they're so charismatic. And, right. and I was talking to my friend from SeaWorld, Chrissy again, and th- th- she was just so nervous that, you know, I, you know, obviously elephants are really under, attack but also like great apes you know what i mean mm-hmm. like i mean right yeah what are your thoughts I mean, on that or- orcas and elephants are kind of what what the, they're the biggest ones that are coming that that they're coming after right now um so say five ten years down the road there's no orcas or elephants in captivity anymore or under human care anymore that's not it doesn't mean that you know organizations like PETA or hsus are going to stop Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're, they're going to just come on to the next one. Like, like I said, the, the people have started coming after ambassador animal programs. Mm-hmm. Um, they've started coming after, you know, keeping big cats under human care. Um, mm-hmm. they'll just keep going 
and keep going until there's no zoo or no aquarium at all ever. Um, and that, that's, it seems to be, that's what their goal is. Um, some, at least the, at least at, at, at their roots that, you know, the hardest, the hard, the most hardcore in those organizations, that's what they want. Um, and unless we, unless we do a lot to, to fight it, it, it that's, that's what they're going to get eventually, unfortunately. I feel like we, I feel like if everyone like those activists focus their efforts on like what's actually going on in the wild, <laughs> like, I mean, in overseas, they're chopping wells up. I mean, they're, I don't know. It's just like, you know, killing, you know, poaching elephants and well, rhinos. Well, P- and PETA and HSUS both as organizations, they raise millions and millions of dollars every year. And that money that they raise, it goes directly into their pockets. It goes into their lawyers' pockets. It goes into um, fighting against places that keep animals in, under human care. And it does not go in any way, shape, or form into helping animals, um, especially with PETA. Less so with HSUS because they do have wildlife rescue rehabilitation things like that. Mm-hmm. Um but you know that the the money that those those two organizations, especially, you know, there's a ton of organizations that don't want any animals under human care at all whatsoever. But those two organizations, especially, they raise millions of dollars, and hardly any of that money is seen by any sort of animal. You know, yeah. that zoos that that's all they do. That's all they want to do is they they want to help help wildlife and uh, these other organizations. They just want us to apparently stop doing that. Yeah. Any last minute words? I know we went down a rabbit hole, but it was interesting talking to a fellow zoo, yeah. a fellow yeah. zoo person. No, this is fun. Yeah. So anything else or any other? Um, I think we, we, we talked about a lot. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I'm ready to get out of here. Awesome. We're good. Awesome, Brian. Well, thank you so much. I just wish you a bunch of success and thank you for listening thank to you. the show. I honestly, of course, when I get emails from people like you, I'm just like, oh, it's so cool that like, I don't know, I'm keeping you educated and entertained while you're working or I don't know for the podcast. So I'm really happy. Yeah, that you, I love that it. You, I'm happy you like the show. Well, thanks, Corbin. All right. See you later, man. Thanks for listening to the Animals to the Max podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and family. Also, if you haven't already, hit the subscribe button. It really helps me out. As always, if you have any guest suggestions, if you want to email me personally, head on over to CorbinMaxi.com. And if you haven't already, check out our social channels. You can follow me at CorbinMaxi on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We'll talk to you next time.